I'm Dennis Tubergen. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is first-time guest Murray Gunn. Uh, Murray will be joining me in the second and third segments of today's program. He is the head of global research at Elliott Wave International, and very excited to have him on the program today. And hey, if you've not yet ordered the March special report, it's titled Bubble Watch and Surviving a Bubble Bust. And you can get your copy of this report for free by simply visiting the website, requestyourreport.com. The website again, requestyourreport.com, and we'd be glad to send you a complimentary copy of the report. You know, I have to wonder, as I was doing some research for today's program and for the headline roundup webinar that I do every week, and incidentally, if you would like to participate in the headline roundup webinar that's done every Monday live at noon. And then the webinar is recorded and uh, available for replay. So you can watch it whenever you'd like on the RLA app. Just go to the app store uh, and search for your RLA and uh, you will get our app for free and uh, you can participate and watch the headline roundup whenever you would like. But getting back to the research that I did for the program today, I was taking a look at the recent statement made by the chair of the Federal Reserve, Mr. Jay Powell. Now, the Federal Reserve, in case you're a new listener, we talk about them a lot on the program. The Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States, and it's the central bank, the Federal Reserve, that controls monetary policy. Uh, And contrary to what a lot of people think, the Federal Reserve is a private organization. It's a private group of bankers, and they have controlled U.S. monetary policy since 1913. Now, that said, with that context, let's jump in and take a look at what Mr. Powell said. He said this, the Federal Reserve is committed to using its full range of tools to support the U.S. economy in this challenging time, thereby promoting its maximum employment and price stability goals. Now, the fact that Mr. Powell says the Fed's goals are maximum employment and price stability is completely contradicted by his next statement. Because in his next statement, he states that the Fed's goal is to create inflation. Listen to this. He said the committee seeks to achieve maximum employment and inflation at the rate of 2% over the longer run. With inflation running persistently lower than this long-run goal, the committee will aim to achieve inflation moderately above 2% for some time so that inflation averages 2% over time and longer-term inflation expectations remain well anchored at 2%. So what's the Fed chairman saying there exactly? He's saying that we want to let inflation run hot for a while, and over time, we want it to average 2%. Now, on a prior program, I have discussed 
the Consumer Price Index, the most widely used measure of inflation, and talked about how flawed that particular metric is. So I'm not going to cover it again in this segment. Mr. Powell continued his statement by saying this. He said, the committee expects to maintain an accommodative stance of monetary policy. What does that mean? An accommodative stance of monetary policy. That simply means they're going to keep interest rates low and they're going to keep printing, as he explains. He said, we're going to keep doing this until these outcomes are achieved. He said, the committee decided to keep the target range for the federal funds rate at zero to a quarter percent and expects it will be appropriate to maintain this target range. In other words, it'll be appropriate to maintain zero percent interest for a significant period of time. He said, in addition, the the Federal Reserve will continue to increase its holdings of Treasury securities by at least $80 billion per month and agency-backed securities of at least $40 billion a month. So what does that mean? They're printing $120 billion a month. So the very fact that he starts the statement by saying, we want stable prices... And then the second part of his statement says we're going to do whatever we can to create inflation is contradictory. Now, if you have been out and you have purchased anything, you know that the inflation rate is running significantly higher than 2% already. Which makes one wonder, is Chairman Powell on the same planet as we are? Does he really expect us to believe this? Now, author Michael Snyder had this to say about the topic of inflation. And the to- after commenting on the Fed statement, he says, they're assuring us that we don't have to be concerned about inflation because they have everything under control. Do you believe them? Good question. We all know that the value of the U.S. dollar has has been steadily declining for a long time, and many Americans have grown accustomed to have the cost of living rise faster than their paychecks do. But listen to this. Over the past 12 months, Snyder writes, an enormous paradigm shift has begun. Instead of devaluing our currency a little bit at a time, now our leaders are going full Weimar. Our money supply is growing at an exponential rate, and this is becoming a major national crisis. And Snyder uses this bit of data that I found to be remarkable. He said it took from the founding of our country all the way to 2020 for the M1 money supply to reach $4 trillion. So think about that for a minute. It took nearly 150 years for the M1 money supply to reach $4 trillion. However, from just a year ago, a little over a year ago, let's just say 15 months, M1 has gone from $4 trillion to $18 trillion. So the money supply has grown at a rate of 450% in the last 15 months as compared to the prior roughly 150 years. Snyder makes an interesting statement. He said to call that economic malpractice would be way too kind. I agree. Snyder says the truth is 
It's complete and utter lunacy, and we are all going to literally pay the price for such madness. I have been warning of that for many, many months here on the program. Now, inflation is starting to show up. And again, as I stated, if you've been out and purchased anything, you know inflation is showing up. Gas prices reached a national average of $2.77 a gallon last week. That's 39 cents higher than at the same time in 2020. And that data comes from AAA. Also, agricultural commodities Those prices have risen by 50% over the past year. That means food price inflation will likely continue to intensify. Snyder said the price of agricultural commodities, uh, quoting economists at Rabobank, that they have risen 50% since the middle of 2020. Uh, In a new report, the bank pins the lift in the price of wheat, corn, soy, sugar, and a range of other commodities on a number of factors, the major factor being a weakening U.S. currency. And of course, if you've been to buy any lumber, you know that lumber prices have increased more than 180% since last spring. And according to the National Association of Home Builders, that now adds about $25,000 to the cost of a new home. So inflation is here. Inflation, given this monetary policy that will likely to continue to intensify, it will likely continue to feed bubbles. And that's why our report this month is so timely. The report is titled Bubble Watch and Surviving a Bubble Bust. To get your copy of this free report, all you need to do is visit requestyourreport.com. It's available only for the month of March. When you go to requestyourreport.com, we'll just ask you where you would like us to mail your copy of this report. We will be very glad to send it to you free and without any further obligation. We are all about education here. And to that end, you should also go to the App Store and download the app, the Your RLA app. Just search under Your RLA and you can get the app for free. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Murray Gunn. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. Uh, my guest today is Mr. Murray Gunn. Murray is a first-time guest here on the program. He is the head of global research at Elliott Wave International. Uh, a couple websites you can check out. I'll give these again uh, by the end of the segment. The first is ElliottWave.com. The second is Socionomics.net, and that's a topic we'll chat about as well. Murray, welcome to the program. Thanks, Dennis. Great, great to be here. So let's start maybe, Murray, by talking a bit about the path you took to arrive and become the head of global research at Elliott Wave International. Okay, well, I've been in the financial markets now for a little over three decades, mostly working on the fund management side with uh, companies like Standard Life um, and the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. Uh, But in the last decade, I've been engaged on the analytical publishing side, working as the head of technical analysis for uh, HSBC and uh, for the last few years now with uh, Elliott Wave International. So um, like most people, I started as a conventional analyst, uh, reading 
economics at the University of Dundee in, in Scotland. And I started my first job thinking that the markets would obey the rules of the economic uh, textbooks I'd been reading about. Of course, it took me about a week to realise that this wasn't the case at all. Um, you know, why I thought uh, if all the news was good and the balance sheet was healthy and earnings were positive, why would the stock price go down? And of course, and vice versa, why would stocks go up if the news and the stats were really bad? So it became pretty obvious pretty quickly that something else was going on. And I thought, uh, and so that led me down the, the path of behavioural aspects and, and technical market uh, analysis. So I got qualified through the Society of Technical Analysts in the UK, and I've been engaged uh, in that, um, still considered to be the unconventional analysis of the markets for the for the bulk of my career. Um, so now, you know, technical market analysis is a is a broad uh, field, which no doubt your listeners will be familiar with. I mean, it encompasses everything from what we would now call quants uh, all the way to things like uh, seasonal psychoanalysis, but in the early 1900s, uh, the bedrock of Western technical analysis became uh, Dow theory, named after uh, Charles Dow and his writings in the, in the Wall Street Journal, which he founded. And then, then along came the Elliott Wave principle, which uh, gave you know, Dow theory a significant enhancement and made the Elliott Wave principle probably the purest form of uh, market analysis that there, that there is. So, Murray, just for our listeners maybe that aren't familiar with Elliott Wave analysis, what is Elliott Wave? Can you just briefly, and I know that's a, a, a tall order, but can you as briefly as you can just explain the, the premise of the principle? Sure. Well, the, the Elliott Wave principle is um, a fractal-based model of the economy uh, discovered by a man called Ralph Elliott uh, in the 1930s, and he discovered that, that human herding behavior causes markets like the stock market, which is a leading indicator of the economy, to exhibit certain identifiable and repeatable patterns. So he found that these patterns repeat at every time scale, and so it uh, enables cycles of herding behavior to be anticipated from the short term to the very long term. So he um, examined price data for the US stock market and he went through this empirical study to discover these patterns and he discovered that they could be labeled and identified and that introduced a forecasting element to market analysis that was previously not appreciated. So for example, if there's a triangular pattern present on the chart of a stock market. It's a fairly reliable indicator of what is going to happen next when the pattern is uh, complete. So you know, now the, these patterns repeat at every time scale. Uh, the fact that they repeat at every time scale means that the Elliott Wave principle can be used to forecast price developments for the next few hours to the next few years or, or even longer. I mean, back in the early 1980s, when when almost everyone was bearish, uh, Robert Prexer, who, who founded uh, Elliott Wave International, uh, used the pattern recognition of the Elliott Wave principle to forecast the, the booming multi-year bull market. Another interesting aspect about the Elliott Wave principle, um, which people find fascinating, is that there's a mathematical basis 
to to what Elliot uh, discovered in that much of market structure is related with regard to the um, so-called golden ratio of 1.618 and its various derivatives. And of course, this is really fascinating for many people because if we believe, um, as we do, that markets, you know, markets aren't driven by balance sheets or profit and loss accounts or whatever it is. Markets are driven by human behavior. Then, you know, with humans being part of the natural world, it begins to sort of make sense that markets can exhibit a structure which accords with a mathematical phenomena seen all over nature and the universe, such as logarithmic spirals, seen in uh, sunflowers, shells, galaxies, to name just three of many. Um, now there is there is a fun a fun game. I think uh, I should uh, point out to you, to your listeners, uh, Dennis. So in, in mathematics, you know, two quantities are in the golden ratio if their ratio is in this is the same as the ratio to their sum of the uh, larger of the two quantities. So here here's a fun game um, for your listeners to do. So think of any two random numbers and write them down. Uh, next to each other, and then add them together to get a third, then add the second and third number to get a fourth. Repeat the process another nine times, and finally divide the last number in the series by the second last number, and your answer will be 1.618. Um, and so it's uh, it's amazing, and it's evidence that there really is actually underlying order to what we think is is chaotic at first, such as the stock market. So, Murray, to play, just to ask a question here, I mean, you certainly look, and this is really a, a question as it relates to what's going on fundamentally in the economy, but, you know, the last uh, dozen years or so since the financial crisis, we've had uh, very loose monetary policy. We've had very aggressive quantitative easing. We've seen massive expansion of the money supply. To what extent has that affected, if any, your technical analysis using Elliott Wave? Well, it certainly has um, affected it in the sense that we are consistently doing what we're doing. I mean, we, we, it hasn't really affected the, the fundamentals of technical analysis. It, it's, just, it's just made it a, a heck of a, a lot more interesting because of the phase of the, the cycle uh, that we're in. I mean, I, I don't think there's any doubt that we're living through one of the most incredible periods of financial and economic history. Uh, and I know, you know, many people are referring to what is going on as the latest industrial revolution, uh, with all the amazing changes that are happening to technology and robotics. Um, and there may be a lot of truth in that, but our our analysis of the objective data, uh, which is the technical analysis of the Elliott Wave Principle, tells us really that we want to tread carefully at this current juncture. There's a clear pattern for us in the price data of the US stock market since the 1932 uh, Great Depression low, which you know, according to the Elliott Wave principle is warning that a very significant top in the stock market could um, be at hand. And as you alluded to, Dennis, that the fact that the last decade has also coincided with the greatest experiment in monetary policy history in the, in the form of money printing and quantitative analysis, it, definitely adds credibility to, to our observances that there's a speculative mania, mania in, um, in almost everything right now, whether it's, whether it's penny stocks, call option buying, 
SPACs, real estate, Bitcoin, junk bonds, digital art, you name it. You know, there are so many warning signs around that this is a bubble phase of the economy. That there's huge leverage with margin margin debts, you know, at its highs and cash to assets at its lows. And of course, you've got the record IPO boom of last year, of the last 12 months, which is, is symptomatic of the tail end of a bull market. You know, when, when private owners are cashing in their chips, it's a, it's a sign that change is probably in the air. But it's, it's not just the technical analysis. You look at the conventional valuation models, they're off the charts as well. You know, look at uh, the stock market as a percentage of GDP uh, or the so-called Warren Buffett indicator. That's at all-time high, all highs. And, you know, we've been looking at uh, something that was produced by the global macro firm Crestcat Capital, uh, which they've done some some uh, great historical analysis. And the conclusion is that 11 measures of valuation, such as uh, price to book, price to sales, etc., are at their most expensive in 120 years. So, you know, of course, bubbles can endure for longer than we might think possible. But this is where the Elliott, Elliott Wave principle gives us an edge. And, and the evidence we're looking at suggests that this year in particular, yeah, it could be a seminal year, um, you know, because it, it, 2021 uh, coincides with an amazing cluster of golden ratio-related uh, cycles going back um, at least a century. Well, if you're just joining us, we're chatting today with uh, Murray Gunn. He is the head of global research at Elliott Wave International. You can learn more at ElliottWave.com. And I've got just under a couple minutes left in uh, this segment, Murray. Can you briefly tell the listeners... Uh, what are you forecasting, both uh, near-term and maybe longer-term, for stocks? Well, our thesis is that the debt bubble, which has been built up over the, the past few decades, is a, is a precursor to, to debt deflation. And we think that the uh, U.S. is the next to experience the blob of deflation that's been moving around the planet for the past 30 years. I mean, it's amazing to think that the Japanese stock market topped out 31 years ago. And the uh, European market topped out 21 years ago, and the Chinese market topped out 14 years ago. So yet, you know, still the idea that the U.S. market uh, can have a prolonged bear phase seems to be anathema to almost everyone, especially the Fed, which seems obsessed with trying to keep the stock market up. So we certainly um, see a, a real risk of a, of a prolonged uh, bear phase. In, uh, in the U.S. market. Uh, the European stock markets are, are similar um, and the price patterns there suggest that they're likely to outperform in the next uh, bear market. Um, and the same with Asia. Asia and some emerging markets have a more bullish tinge to them, so they'll probably outperform in a, in a general uh, bear market. Um, we see a, a, a big risk in, in, in bonds, um, especially in, in the credit markets. And the one thing we've been highlighting recently is the um, is the webpage treasurydirect.gov, um, and for people to search for two-year uh, FRNs or floating rate notes. So we view that as a, a certainly a safe a safe hedge against uh, rising uh, interest rates. Well, my guest today is Mr. Murray Gunn. He is the head of global research at Elliott Wave International. I would encourage you to check out his work at ElliottWave.com as well as Socionomics.com. And I'll continue my conversation with Murray when RLA Radio returns. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm Dennis Tubergen. I am chatting today 
with Mr. Murray Gunn, who is the head of global research at Elliott Wave International. You can check out his work at ElliottWave.com, and you can learn also more at Socionomics.net. And we'll be talking about Socionomics in this segment. Before we get to that topic, though, Murray, I would like to jump back in where we left off at the end of the last segment. You had mentioned that you see big risk for bonds, and certainly when you look at uh, the U.S. Treasury long bond, we've seen interest rates in the last year go from like 0.9% on the 30-year bond to over 2.5%. That's a big move. More of the same coming in your view? Well, we, we certainly see that as a risk. As I mentioned in the previous segment, our thesis is that the, this, this huge debt bubble that's been built up uh, over the past few decades has, is, is a precursor to debt deflation. And um, debt deflation is, in our view, the, the, the proper definition of deflation. Um, and, and an increase in debt is, a, is the proper definition of inflation. Uh, but of course, everyone thinks of inflation and deflation in terms of consumer prices. And of course, people are really focused on consumer prices at the moment. And this is one reason why people are saying that it's uh, you know coincident with the the, the bond markets uh, selling off and um, you know we actually see solid evidence that that some commodities have established long term lows um, certainly the, the the advance in the in the like the CRB index over the past year uh, could be evidence that, that there could be you know further advances to come but. Here's the crucial point. The, the, the Elliott Wave principle allows us to acknowledge that markets don't move up or down in straight lines. So, you know, commodities have had a very strong run over the past year, but the rally, uh, at least in the interim, looks to be you know, quite mature and a correction could be very deep. So, you know, in, in, in bond markets, if we're correct about stock markets uh, coming off and, and going into a bear market, then credit markets should come under uh, increasing pressure. The rise in yields this year has meant that if you look at investment grade bonds, they've had the worst start to the year in, uh, in a, to a year in decades. And there's an interesting aspect to credit markets right at this moment because junk bonds seem to be holding up relatively well uh, with regard to uh, or relative to investment grade. And you know some of this could simply be down to the fact that with yields in general so low, still, you know, given the rise, still so low, people still feel compelled to invest in anything with a yield greater than 4%, no matter the risks. So that certainly doesn't sound to us like a healthy reason to be invested in things like uh, uh, junk bonds. So if the economy moves moves into debt deflation stage, uh, as we think likely, junk bonds would seem to be an accident waiting to, to happen. So, Murray, before we get into the topic of socionomics, um, I'd just like to get your take on this whole inflation-deflation argument. And I ask all my guests this question, and you have uh, somewhat clarified how you would define inflation and deflation um, but do you see that the Fed is going to be able to stave off this debt deflation, or can you envision a scenario where we have debt deflation and yet we have consumer prices increasing because of the devaluation of the dollar? Uh, where do you come down on this whole discussion? 
Well, we certainly saw something like that in the 1970s, and I know that some people are thinking of that way uh, in terms of what you would call stagflation, so, so sort of weak, um, stagnant economic growth accompanied uh, with, with rising or ever-rising you know, consumer prices. For us, it really all gets down to confidence um, because it's the uh, mood of uh, society which drives everything. And so once confidence you know, disappears, then asset prices should deflate and, and debt uh, should deflate uh, as well. So, Murray, that's a perfect segue into talking about the uh, socionomics topic that we want to talk about. And if you're just joining us, uh, I'm chatting with Murray Gunn. He is the head of global research at Elliott Wave International. You can learn more about his work at ElliottWave.com and socionomics.net. Uh, Murray, for our listeners that may not be familiar with the term, can you define socionomics? Of course. So um, Robert Prechter's socionomic theory is a field of study um, conducted under the hypothesis that um, waves of social mood motivate the character of social actions, not the other way around as most people would believe. Most people would believe that it's social actions which determine social mood. So in socionomics, it's the waves of social mood drive the stock market. And so the stock market is our gauge of social mood or, or sociometer, as we would like to, we call it, you know. Um, so our historical research has, uh, you know, found that positive social actions such as peace, inclusion, and uh, what you would call consensus, they tend to proliferate with a, with a positive social mood and a rising stock market. And on the other hand, you know, negative social actions such as war, exclusion, and disharmony tend to uh, proliferate with a negative social mood and a declining stock market. So... I remember when I, when I interviewed uh, Mr. Prechter on the program many years ago that one of the forecasts he made was that we would see um, a, a relaxation as far as uh, the legalization of certain drugs. Uh, and he, he based that prediction, as I recall, on his studies of socionomics. That's turned out to actually be the case. So what trends do you see using this science moving ahead as far as uh, societal moods are concerned. Well, it's it's fascinating what's going on in politics at the moment because it ties in with our thoughts about about social mood um, and where we are in the in in the cycle, uh, really. So when when social mood is positive, politics tends to gravitate towards centrist beliefs and ideas, uh, along with a consensus, uh, the idea of consensus building and togetherness and when positive, when the positive mood is waning and turning negative, politics moves to the uh, extremes. Be that both left and right, and, and divisiveness tends to be the main theme. So, you know, and also during such times, you know, radical theories can can start to take hold, you know, such as the modern monetary theory (MMT), or as uh, everyone likes to call it these days, the magic money tree. Um, that argument that, that deficits don't matter and that a government like the US can 
print as much money as it wants without any consequences. So we doubt uh, we doubt it will, but it may yet turn out to be correct. But the main point for us is that such a radical theory is being considered, and, and this all ties in with social mood becoming more uh, extreme and into more negative. And, and this is happening in Europe too, with the rise of nationalism over the past decade, whether that be in Spain, Eastern Europe, um, uh, or the UK. So it seems to us that you know consensus politics is a bit of a distant dream uh, for many societies. And if we are correct, and many stock markets are topping out, the divisive politics uh, that we've seen may become even more intense. So to what extent does the study of socionomics uh, really uh, hinge on or rely upon the fact that, you know, human behavior is pretty predictable and these things just cycle and these cycles repeat themselves over long periods of time? Very much, very much so. Now, you know, socionomics differs from socioeconomics which is a study of the effects of economic environments on society. Socioeconomics rather identifies the, the probable trend in social moods so, so that we can determine likely social uh, outcomes. The way, the way we like to think about it is in terms of causality. So a conventional way of looking at the world would be to say that something like uh, war makes people angry. The, the socioeconomic way of looking at it would be to say that angry people make war. So you're kind of turning the, the world a little bit upside down. And, um, you know, likewise, conventional wisdom might say that recessions make business people cautious. We, we would say that cautious business people cause recessions. So, you know, again, setting us apart from conventional analysis, we don't ask ourselves, what is the news? We ask ourselves, why is this news happening now? Um, because the character of social events and news will be determined really by the trend in in social mood, uh, and so if we know the trend in social mood, which is manifested by the trend in the stock market, we can anticipate what sort of events uh, and news uh, to expect. So, for example, history tells us that wars and conflicts often occur after a period of, of negative social mood, uh, a declining stock market, and peace treaties tend to come after a period of positive social mood. So in the time we have left, Murray, given uh, social mood that exists presently, uh, what is your forecast for an economic recovery? Do you see a recovery? Do you see a repeat of the, of the 1930s? Uh, wh where, where do you have things based on your study of socionomics? Well, I mean, there's always going to be a mix of characteristics in society. So we have to be cognizant of that when, you know, concluding what social mood is doing. And, and that's a bit like now when things, uh, we have things like, you know, divisive politics on the one hand, uh, but other aspects such as uh, celebrity endorsement of SPACs, which is a sign of extremely positive social mood. Uh, they, they're seeming to give kind of mixed messages. But the conclusion uh, we come to is that, you put these forces together, as well as others, it tells us that positive social mood is probably waning. So in that regard, we look to see that uh, social mood would be going into a declining uh, or, a, or a negative trending phase, which means bear markets in stocks. Um, and we probably see that being quite a, a prolonged bear market in, uh, in the US uh, in particular. As I said earlier, Japan... The Asian markets in Europe have already really had their their big multi-year bear markets, and the U.S. 
you know, really hasn't. So um, that's what we would see. Well, the clock says we're going to have to leave it there. My guest today has been Mr. Murray Gunn. He is the head of global research at Elliott Wave International. You can learn more at ElliottWave.com and Socionomics.net. Murray, pleasure to chat with you today. Love to have you back down the road, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dennis. Pleasure. We will return after these words. This is RLA Radio. I'm Dennis Tubergen, your host. Glad you're listening in today, and thanks again to Mr. Murray Gunn for joining us on today's program. Hey, if you're a procrastinator, there was some good news last week from the Internal Revenue Service. You now have an extra month to get your taxes filed. The Department of the Treasury and the IRS have extended the filing deadline until May the 17th. So a bit of good news for those of you that like to wait until the last minute to get your taxes done. You can now kick that can down the road another month. You know, I want to talk in this segment a bit about a couple things that I believe could lead potentially to a stock market decline. Now, in the interest of full transparency, let me tell you that I don't have a crystal ball that works any more than anyone else. However, I do study history, and when you take a look at current valuations of stocks, they're higher than at any point in history, and I'll explain in just a moment. And there's a couple other things that are now taking place that have not been widely reported by mainstream media that I want to bring to your attention in this segment that could well be the catalyst, in my view, for a stock market decline. Now, let me start with market valuation. What is often now referred to as the Buffett indicator, because Warren Buffett at one point said this was his favorite valuation tool. You simply take the market capitalization of stocks, the total value of all stocks, and you divide that by U.S. economic output or gross domestic product. So it's market cap at the top of the fraction, GDP or economic output at the bottom of the fraction. And using that valuation measure, stocks are now more overvalued than they were in 1999 prior to the tech stock bubble. And that was the prior peak. So when you take a look at purely valuations, there's only there's not been any time in history that stocks have been this overvalued. So that stat alone should make you proceed with caution. The second thing going on is that behind the scenes, very quietly, interest rates have been rising. Now, in my weekly newsletter, Portfolio Watch, which you can get for free by downloading the Your RLA app. Just go to the App Store and download the Your RLA app. Search for Y-O-U-R-R-L-A, Your RLA. Uh, I track in that newsletter the 30-year U.S. Treasury bond yield. Now, about a year ago, at the end of March in 2020, the yield on the 30-year Treasury bond dipped below 1%. It is now approaching 2.5%. That is an eye-popping increase in interest rates in just one year. Now, when you compare that 
interest rate, that yield, with the dividend yield of the S&P 500, which is about 1.5%, there's now a lot more yield on the long treasury bond than there is in stocks. So consider a conservative investor that moved from bonds or CDs to stocks because stocks offered a better yield. Now many of those investors may see things the other way and say, now I can get a better yield in bonds than I can in stocks. And I don't really want to take the risk in stocks given how overvalued stocks are. So I think you may see many of those investors move back to more conservative bonds. Now, there's something else going on behind the scenes that's a little bit complex that I think could see Treasury yields go up even more. See, the Federal Reserve is letting an important bank capital rule expire at the end of March. Now, the backstory on this is that a year ago, in the midst of the onset of COVID, the Fed relaxed the capital rules for big banks. There's something called a supplemental leverage rule. And that was relaxed a year ago when banks' balance sheets literally exploded. Now, what is this supplemental leverage rule? Well, banks have to maintain a certain amount of equity as compared to their leverage exposure. So, Basically, a year ago, the Fed said, you know what, you have U.S. Treasuries and you've got deposits held at the Federal Reserve. You don't have to include those in the ratio. Well, now, as of April 1, those have to be included again. So what's going to happen? Well, banks may find themselves in a position to have to sell U.S. Treasuries or turn away deposits. Now, Jennifer Peepzak, who is the chief financial officer for J.P. Morgan, stated last week on a conference call that because this rule is going to be reimposed or reinforced, the bank may be forced to sell U.S. Treasuries and turn away deposits. Now, as a quick side note, you have to ask yourself, how would a bank turn away deposits? Well, they might reduce interest rates or even impose negative interest rates. And Alistair McLeod talked about that on this program not long ago. However, this change will also, I believe, lead to many banks selling U.S. Treasuries, thereby further driving up interest rates, which now makes bonds even more attractive to conservative investors. Now, the Wall Street Journal commented on this last week. They said the Federal Reserve said it was ending its year-long reprieve that had eased capital requirements for big banks. This disappointed Wall Street firms that had lobbied for an extension. So the Fed's decision basically means that the banks now have to include treasuries and deposits held at the central bank in this ratio. So treasuries and deposits now count as assets. Before, they weren't counted as assets. So banks now have to reduce their holdings or find a way to raise capital. So that change will likely drive interest rates higher. Interest rates moving higher on U.S. treasuries, along with overvalued stocks, could create the catalyst for a market decline. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, I think that 
given the market valuation, stocks now are potentially in a bubble. This could be the pin that pops the bubble. So if you've not yet gotten our March report titled Bubble Watch and Surviving a Bubble Bust, I'd encourage you to do so by visiting requestyourreport.com. You can also get a number of free resources at our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's the program for this week. Hope you got something you can use, and I'll be back again next week.